for this time together. We are so grateful to gather. We are thankful for this country. It was founded on biblical principles, men wanting freedom to worship. And we're so grateful for the many years this country has seen. But Lord, this country is not the church. It's not our savior. It's not the light on a hill either. The gospel is the light on the hill. The glory of Christ is the light on the hill. He is who we champion. He is who we really bend the knee to. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a church known, known for propping up Jesus, lifting him up so he will draw all men to himself. And, Lord, he would even use Riverbend to do that. So, Lord, keep us focused. Lord, we can feel the world. COVID, political unrest, all of this is shaking the foundation of what people put their feet on, Lord. But Christ, you are unshakable. We stand firmly on you. And you strengthen us. And I pray this passage this morning as we watch in this text, you take your last breath and all that that means. We pray that you would strengthen us for the task here on earth you've called us to do. To be lights shining the gospel brightly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, certainly it's true in all of history there's no greater injustice, speaking of justice and injustice, than the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was nothing short of a murder of an innocent man, a truly innocent man. And evil men were just way too caught up in political stuff, weren't they? They were caught up in the present political world. They were desiring power. And they crucified, think about this, they crucified the long-awaited Messiah, the one that the Old Testament spoke of, all the way from Genesis 3, 15. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, and there they're being challenged because they healed a man on the Sabbath. And, And in response to that, Peter says this, chapter 3, 14 and 15, he says, but you disowned the holy and righteous one. You disowned him. <laughs> I think that was actually a kind word of what they did to him. And asked for a murder to be granted to you. And then he says this, you put to death the prince of life. You put to death the prince of life. Well, in our passage this morning, we will experience Jesus' last breath. His last breath. And as he completes the plan of salvation, there's so much involved in here. I'm going to do my best to get as far as I can this morning because we want to celebrate the Lord's table at the end of this. But we still marvel at it, don't we? I I spent this week enamored with this text, and I found myself marveling that the one who hung the stars is, is hanging on a cross. The one who created trees is hanging on one. I marveled at that as I just seen in my mind's eye the picture of my Savior, the creator, sustainer of all things, hanging there on his own creation. Now, despite this massive sinful rejection of the Son of God, the Father does not pour out his wrath on those who murdered him. He pours his wrath out on what? On him. I mean... 
so we go even farther. We think about this glorious Christ, glorious creator hanging on a cross, but then we watch now the, the Father now pour his wrath not on the deserving, but on the undeserving in order to save us. See, this was the divine, sovereign plan of God, and it is our only hope. Isaiah 53 reminds us that it pleased God to crush him, that he may justify the many, declare us righteous. So Christ, in this text, becomes our substitute. He becomes our curse. And listen to this. He becomes our death. It's astounding, isn't it? And the Father was at the cross. Don't miss this. We'll see this today. The Father's at the cross, not only judging Christ on our behalf, but he's witnessing the finished work of his son. He's there. We're gonna see him descend in in darkness and judgment upon there. He's there. And the evidence of his presence is overwhelming and we'll see a, a torn veil which allows us to come into the presence at any time. Let me give you a few thoughts this morning. Number one, darkness of judgment on the suffering servant. The darkness of judgment on the suffering servant. Look at verse 33 with me. When the sixth hour came, that would be noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. In the sixth hour at noon now, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, hell is not only just reserved for um, unforgiven sinners. It's reserved for fallen angels. And I got thinking about darkness and death and judgment. And darkness is always equated with judgment, isn't it? And it's equated with eternal punishment. And, and we see like in Jude chapter six that angels who did not keep their abode, their proper abode and disobeyed God, the Bible says that they're kept in eternal bond, bonds under darkness for the day of judgment. And then those who reject grace of God, Jude also picks out men that have, he says, were like hidden reefs that you could run into. They're, they're like clouds without water and uh, autumn trees without fruit. They're, they're, they're worthless is what he's saying. But he says, for them is reserved the black of darkness. The black of darkness is a description of hell, actually. So darkness is, is always a, a reflection of sin and judgment. But darkness is about to fall on Christ in the world here. Now notice in verse 33, it tells us two important details here. It says, first, there were, we understand from this that there's two three-hour periods of darkness. I mean, two hour, excuse me, two three-hour periods of judgment on Christ. The, the Bible breaks them up. He's crucified at 9 a.m. Darkness falls at noon, it's dark till three in the afternoon when he takes his last breath. And so the first three hours, we see our Lord physically nailed to the cross. He's mocked by soldiers, a crowd, the religious elite are there um, persuading the crowd, and he's even mocked by robbers. And in the height of that, of that first three hours, there in his beautiful sovereign way he rescues one of the thieves doesn't he we saw that last week and he draws him to himself and and then you have these self-righteous works of of these religious men these leaders who won't believe unless he comes down off the cross so their faith is only by sight and 
And that's certainly a mocking of God and of Christ in itself. Comes off that cross. (laughs) Nobody, nobody saved. And so at 9 a.m. he's crucified. um, And now it's noon. And begins this second three-hour time of suffering. And think about this. The sun is at its highest. It's at its hottest. And our Lord labors on in his suffering. Secondly, we see in verse 33 a, a unique feature of this period of time is that it says darkness fell on the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, it's spoken in such a way that the Bible's denoting like a historical fact. Notice the way it reads. Darkness fell over the land. I mean, it's a statement, isn't it? A strong statement. And even the verb tense indicates that it came quickly. It came upon them quickly. The Greek word for land could be translated earth. And it's quite possible, think about this, it's quite possible that the entire world went dark. Went dark. Luke says it this way, and this may help you a little bit in that imagery. Luke says, while the sun light, the sun's light failed. And there's much people writing about eclipse and all that stuff, but there's nothing in history that there was one. In fact, whatever caused the sunlight to fail, the gospel writers regarded it as supernatural. They see it that way. But what it does do is it signifies God's judgment. Signifies God's judgment is coming. And it's coming upon the sinless one. Darkness has come. It isn't hard to kind of just chase down that eye of darkness and blackness and sin and find it related. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're reminded of our prior state. since we were being darkened in our understanding. And I thought about that. Darkness is falling upon Christ. Here, he's gathered with all these people who are mocking him. There's just pure hatred towards him. There's complete rejection of him being the son of God. And they're exposing that that even in the darkness, this supernatural darkness that all of a sudden at noon falls upon the land. They're dark in their understanding. And then the verse says in uh, Ephesians 4.18 that they're excluded from the life of God. They're excluded from the life of God. You ever dealt with somebody who, who you're trying to help and they cannot in any way understand what you're saying? Happens all the time. Happens with family members, people we're trying to rescue, people going through church discipline, all that. We see this, they're, they're just excluded from the life of God. Nothing makes sense to them. They're in the darkness. But what's so fascinating is the darkness is coming now upon Christ at his death. Second thought this morning, the weight of our sin and the abandonment of the suffering servant. Look at verse 34 with me. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Laman Sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, up to this point, Jesus had only spoken just briefly, and it was to the unbelieving thief. He's been quiet in these first three hours outside of that conversation with the now-believing thief. But at noon, here somewhere around this time, Jesus cries out. Now, you remember, he's been on the cross at least three hours. So somewhere during this span of the second three hours of suffering, he breaks the silence, and and he speaks. And And it's not some feeble voice as you look at this. It's not one exhausted from suffering or 
but it has strong emotion to it. When you, when you see this, my God, my God, he's quoting Psalms 22. With every strength and breath he has as he probably musters up his lungs and pulls himself out, he cries this out after so long of silence. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani is a phrase that I don't think people would understand who don't know the gospel. Why is he crying out? Why is he doing this? See, only Matthew and Mark record this quote um, in its translation. It seems to be this kind of Hebraic, tangled Arabic version of Psalms 22 one, you know the verse that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there seems to be an intensity. Jesus' plea is repeated, right? My God, my God. Notice the double pronoun in the text. It's stressing this clinging to his God. He's, he's clinging to him. Where are you? It's a heavy level of feeling the abandonment. Notice the verb there, forsaken. I think this verb looks all the way back from the time of the garden at his arrest to that very moment. Verb denotes someone being deserted in adverse circumstances. And then Christ in his humanity cries out, why? Why? I think this marks not only the intensity of his suffering, but the most importantly, this separation as he, in some way, separated the Father. He's there, the Father's there. We know it, the darkness has descended. We know he's not leaving him, but there's some kind of separation as the holiness of God is dealing with sin upon his son. And he cries out, why? He has suffered virtually in silence for the first three hours. And here his cry reveals, I I don't know how to say this, but his unfathomable depth of suffering. I think what it does is it confronts us to the mystery of the atonement. It confronts you, doesn't it? How bad is this? How, How wicked and dangerous and deadly are my sins How great is it upon our Lord? Brothers and sisters, can we get used to the saying, well, Jesus died for us? See, it's a statement like this that brings you to the enormity of the cost, isn't it? It makes me think about today's sins or yesterday's sins or even tomorrow's sins that I may take for granted. There's an immensity here to this. And I'm confronted with things I don't fully understand. That God would judge him because of me. The darkness just serves to emphasize the unique, unmatched suffering and intensity of that judgment. I think it takes you right back to the garden. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, just this sweet, intimate relationship the son had with the father while on earth. And and he says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, the cup was 
was wished to be removed in the garden. He had submitted fully God, fully human. He submitted to accepting that will. And listen, he submitted to the bitterness of the wrath of God and now he was swallowing that wrath to the last drop. And it causes him to cry out. See, the separation which Jesus felt between himself and God was the weight of our sin being laid on him. That verse we've said so many times, 2 Corinthians 5.21, but it just comes glaring back, doesn't it? He, God, then the verb, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Strong, isn't it? He made him. There's no other way. You have to drink the cup. And I think you just feel that weight as he cries out, my God, my God. See, I've said it a million times here, and I'll say it till I die. God judged him like he committed our sins. God judged him like he committed our sins. He's now our sin bearer. Think about that. My past, present, and future sins, just me, just Scott alone, and the numerous sins that I've committed and will commit are put on him, let alone all the elect of all time. And, and, and to broaden that a little bit, John makes it very clear. Not only did he die for the elect, his, his death was sufficient for the sins of the whole entire world. So he's our sin bearer. And when we look at this passage, enduring the divine wrath of God. He's enduring it. The burden of all of our sin causes Jesus, and think about this, to be uniquely identified with us sinners. Remember the Bible says he suffered in all ways, he identified with us, and now he's identifying with us in sin, not him committing the sins, he's identifying with our wages. That's our identification with him. In that moment, Jesus witnessed all the destructive nature of wicked sin. All the hurt and all the things. Think about all the sin that you've seen in your life. All the destructiveness that it's done to your own life, to people you know. All of that. Just think about all of that. That is what Christ is bearing. And then his father separates from him. It is an abandonment at some level. He must pull away from him in his righteousness and holiness why his son suffers. You see, the true nature of punishment of sin is separation from God. That is the true nature of the punishment of sin. Unforgiven sinners will suffer separation for eternity. For eternity. And let me be clear. I want, I want you to hear this. This does not mean that Jesus personally was the object of divine hatred or divine displeasure of some sort. God never stopped loving his son. In fact, love was never so great, was it? But in the understanding of divine moral judgment, Jesus had to be our representative. He had to be our substitute. He had to be left alone with our sin. And I think that's what hits us so hard. The darkness at the cross did not 
represent the absence of God, but it represent his terrifying presence. I want you to get that this morning. I think somehow we get in our minds that, oh, God judged and abandoned him and left him and he was there for those hours. That darkness represents his judgment and he's there. In all of his terrifying holiness, he is pressing our sins upon his son. Father descends and unleashes his holy wrath against the sin bearer. That's what Isaiah 53, 5 says. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, just before that great verse we just read in 21, it says this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to him. So this abandonment idea and separation, we have to be careful with that because God's there. He's divinely judging his son. He's in his son reconciling us to himself through that finished work. And yet it's brutal. It's absolutely beyond our imagination of what Christ bore Third thought. The suffering servant was mocked until the end. The suffering servant was mocked until the end. Look at verse 35 with me. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began to say, behold, he is calling Elijah. Well, the reference is probably to just some Jewish bystanders. Uh, Romans would not have understood that language most likely. Darkness restrained at people from leaving. They were probably there. You remember, this is dark. The Bible says the word is clear. There's no light. It's a very dark darkness. It's a black blackness that falls on the world. And so they're restrained there, and, and, and they don't have anything lights with them. They're not expecting the lights to go out at noon. And so it keeps everybody at the cross in a sense, right? You can see the scene. Many are there just because they want to see the final outcome. They're wondering if he's going to come off the cross. They've heard about his works and all that he's done. And then this loud cry comes out, which they clearly heard, and they seem to interpret this that he's calling Elijah. Notice the verse. Behold, he's calling Elijah. Some of the bystanders heard him and cry out, and they seem to think he's, he's referring to, to, to Elijah coming in to help him. Now, whether they misunderstood the cry and actually thought he was calling Elijah or whether they're just simply continuing to mock him is where I, I pretty much land there. You can see how disturbing this is. Eloi, remember Eloi, Eloi, is that you can hear that, you can understand that they may take this as Elijah, he's calling Elijah, but they're, because their minds were perverted and their lips were perverted by what they were saying and mocking, it now becomes almost a joke or they twist it. See, they understood Malachi 4, that Elijah was going to come and be a forerunner, forerunner to Christ. We know that was in reference to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to the Messiah. But they used this occasion to accuse Jesus of calling him. And if you're really the Messiah, then Elijah's going to come here and he's going to come rescue you. So we're going to sit here and wait for this. In other words, this poor, deluded, so-called Messiah thinks Elijah's coming down to get him. That's where I think they land. You know, Psalms 22, 1, where this great cry of Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, has another phrase at the end of it. It says, uh, far from my deliverance, 
are the words of my groaning. It's an interesting stage. His groaning is not bringing deliverance. And if they would have known this text, they would have known he was not calling for anybody to rescue him out of the cross. They would have understood that this could only be something of a sacrifice, something of a substitute, something he was doing on the, on the basis of someone else. And it's very possible they were responding to his anguish just with more mockery. Look at verse 36. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, let's see whether Elijah will come down to uh, come and take him down. In John's account, he is, this is where he cries out, I thirst, and somebody responds with this drink. And most likely, it was probably a Roman soldier. Um, this was a drink they carried. It was common to soldiers. It was common to people who worked in the field. It was a mixture of wine and, and vinegar. It, it was a drink that would um, hydrate you quickly, more quickly than water. And, and it was known that the soldiers carried this. And so possibly a soldier went and got this. And so the drink, you can see it in the text, is soaked up into a sponge and it's put on a reed and then it's lifted up to the mouth of Jesus. And it's clear in the passage that Jesus drank this one. But he didn't drink it to, to sustain his strength or to rely on it for refreshment. Jesus drank it to fulfill prophecy and we know that prophecy. It's Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. He's fulfilling scriptures. And yet they said, let's see whether Elijah will come down, right, and take him off the cross. They, let's see what's going to happen here. Doubtlessly, the statement is by someone in the crowd. Their goal was to prolong the life of Christ, to see if something spectacular would happen, and then they could believe, right? It's all by sight. Uh, just to close out this point, I got thinking, you know, we'll deal with this next week, but Jesus' mother, earthly mother, marries there somewhere. John's there. Maybe, maybe they're not having yet the Spirit of God upon them yet. Maybe, and I think this would be very human, maybe they were hoping he would come off that cross. Maybe they would say, we've seen you do things. We've watched the miracle at Cana. You turned water into wine. We watched you bring Lazarus out of the grave. Maybe you will come out. I would have. <laughs> but that thinking didn't last long, did it? Man, did the apostles start preaching. They knew that he was not coming off that cross. This was the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would not abandon it. He would not abandon the plan of God. And he would drink that cup. Fourth thought this morning. The suffering servant, shout, final shout in separation. The suffering servant's final shout in separation. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Well, all the gospel writers record this last shout. This would have been very unusual for a man whose natural strength had been weakened by such persecution and suffering and agony. It's the second cry in this text. The first one, of course, my God, my God, as he mustered the strength for that. But this is the last breath of Jesus as he finishes all that the Father had sent him. Matthew says it this way, Matthew 27, 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There's control there, isn't there? Luke records 
Christ's self-committal, right? He says it this way, Luke 23, 46, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This final shout obviously is the triumph call that, that John records. John chapter 19, verse 30, therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, this is the cry, it, what, is finished. And he bowed his head And then this phrase, and gave up his spirit. Complete control, isn't he? Complete control. Those those three little words are so beautiful to a believer, aren't they? They mean so much to us. How precious it is, it is finished. (laughs) What if it it wasn't finished? (laughs) What if it was based on our church attendance? What if it was based on the giving of your tithes and offerings? What if it was based on your good works? See, there's sweet words to a believer. There's sweet words, and we see the scene. We know what our Savior's going through. We see all the weight that he is carrying of our past, present, and future sins, and yet in the middle of this, these are the sweetest words to a believer. We add nothing to it. Without phrase, it, it kind of grabs you, doesn't it? And he breathed his last. See, the wages of sin is death, so Jesus breathed his last. He had to die. And, and yet, humanly, that, that hits us, doesn't it? That's our Lord. He's breathing his last because of me. Isn't it interesting that the writers of the scriptures don't use the word die or death? They don't speak of it. They just say he breathes his last. They don't say he died. None of that. And I think that's because this is no ordinary death. And they are writing on the other side of the cross. They understand what this means. I'm so glad he was in control. I'm glad I was in control of that situation. And I love my Lord because he voluntarily died. Now, Jesus refused to use his own will or supernatural powers to sustain his life, did he? He's just, by this strength of a human man, he stays on the cross. And and then he yields up his spirit. And, And if there was a death certificate, a Christian could write it like this it said he died the result of physical affliction brought on by the sinfulness of man and we could say this so many ways we could say well God put him to death Acts chapter 2 22 and 23 we could say our sins put him to death right he, uh, it's because of our sin the wages of sin is death he had to take that place for us we could we could say it was his will. He put himself to death. He, he believed in the Father's plan and he, he, he gave up his spirit. He, he committed his life and breathed his last. We could say that sinful men killed him. That's what Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says, put to death by sinful men. See, we could say all that and they're all true because it encompasses all of that, that death on the cross. I, I think that's why 
here in the end, we've turned our attention not just to the physical agonies, but to the resulting work of him. And though it's difficult for us humans to get our mind around such agony, such suffering, the goal was not merely suffering, the goal was salvation. What would we preach if the goal wasn't salvation? And so I wrote in my notes, I said his death, his death was the direct result of the agony of sin. The agony of a sin put him to death, resulting in our salvation. Look at verse 38 with me. What a beautiful text this is. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, all the writers record this. It's overwhelmingly clear that the tearing of the veil and the death of Christ coincided. He breathes his last, and at that last gasp of air, the veil is torn. And you know the veil, what he's talking about, it's this inner curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. It was a separation between God and man. You could not get to God. You were separated. You were on the other side of that. It's a very clear illustration. And notice, very clearly in the text, it says that the veil ripped from what? Top to bottom. <laughs> oh, this is supernatural. This is God with a mighty stroke bringing down the barrier between God and man. Look, that veil was just a constant reminder. Constant reminder that you could not get to God. There was no animal that could get you to God permanently. There was no man. There was no priest. There was no works. There was none of those things that could permanently get you into the presence of God. It was once a year in the Day of Atonement. But here comes the final lamb. The final lamb. The last breath of the final lamb the veil tore. The exact time of Christ's death. Matthew says the earth was quaking. Dead bodies were given life. <laughs> See, God's present here. He's here. He's not, he's not abandoned the scene. He's there judging his son. And, and the earth is quaking. The barriers removed. The dead are alive. Rocks split open. Darkness fled away at this point. It all points to the fact that we now have a permanent way to God through Jesus Christ alone. Oh, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The time is now three o'clock. He's been on the cross for six hours. This is the time when the priests were at their busiest, particularly on Passover. They're slaying lamb after lamb after lamb, burning part of that sacrifice, giving back part of the sacrifice for them to go eat. This is happening at the height of the evening sacrifice. And suddenly, think about this, suddenly, in the presence of all these priests, this veil is, is torn, the ground is shaken, and, and, and though they probably did their best to try to patch this up, I'm not sure how, what they did. The, there's no recordings of how they handled this. They, they did sew it up for the next 40 years in some way before it was finally destroyed. But here it is. God says, now come right to me. None of the writers give a lot of explanation on this until you get to the book of Hebrews. Listen, just listen to these beautiful verses for the sake of time. Hebrews chapter 6, 19 through 20. This hope we have as an anchor for our soul. Boy, I love the terminology, don't we? And a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. 
where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. I love that word, right? Confidence. Oh, it's, it, we're, it's humble. I mean, we're like, oh, Lord, thank you. But it's with confidence. Not, and why it's confidence? Because you didn't do it. <laughs> if you did it, oh, you're going to have all kinds of, you're going to have all kinds of issues. You're going to have doubts and fears and frustrations and angers and all that stuff's going to hit you. But we have confidence because he did it. He did it with his blood. You can see the scene. He's carrying his own blood and the veil rips and he comes right into the Father and says, well, this do, that'll do. I'll take it. Let us draw near with sincere hearts, with full assurance of faith. Full assurance. And then that leads us to Hebrews 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray you have confidence in Christ. Confidence in this glorious Savior who did what we could not do. Well, there's one more scene here before we go to the table. Our fifth point is the soldier's view of the suffering servant. Look at verse 39 with me. The centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Well, by the inspiration of the Scriptures, God records a firsthand eyewitness See, this is a Roman centurion. He's, he's a supervisor, most likely of the crucifixion. He probably has direct accountability to Pilate. He's a centurion, the centurion, so he's most likely the commander of hundreds of soldiers. And he's positioned himself facing the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about this. This centurion would have had close watch over him. And think about when the lights went out, he probably got right there because he has to make sure those people die. Other he dies. So he's right there, close proximity, watching Jesus die. And it is an amazing account, isn't it? Notice that Mark stresses that the centurion was deeply impressed with the manner of Jesus' death. He saw the way he died. I I don't know, maybe maybe this is who Jesus was referring to. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Maybe, Maybe Jesus looked at him at some time. The Bible doesn't say This man makes a profound statement. Notice he says, truly. And this is a centurion's way of of showing his conviction concerning Jesus. He he designates the man. He says, this man, this one, there's no mistake. And then he uses a past tense verb here, was, and it's his, the centurion's way of saying he's, this remarkable man is dead now. But I acknowledge, I acknowledge that he's the son of God. His death, his death brought him to truth. Isn't that what happens to us? (laughs) We believe he died for us. His death brought him to truth. And and the centurion charge, it's simply, uh, there's more to that. We would know on this side of the cross, more to that. But what a title. He had, listen, he had heard that was the charge against him, that he made himself out to be the son of God. He had heard that title as they beat him and mocked him and spit on him. He had heard all that. And now he confessed it as truth. And so at the end of this scene, as we move our way to communion, I want you to think about this. There's two former godless men, a thief and a commander, 
who become trophies of God's grace. Right there. And brothers and sisters in this room, you are witnesses of the last breath of the Lord. Just as vivid as the day it took place because of the inspired scriptures. Do you still marvel at it? Are you still amazed at grace? What's pulling your attention away from Christ? Elections, riots, COVID? What's Satan using to delude your view of this glorious scene? Oh, brothers and sisters, may we not lose this. This is the only hope for every rioter, every, everyone out there. We have the message. And so, brothers and sisters, may the death, burial, and resurrection, the finished work of Jesus, a torn veil, no separation, always be on our tongue. Father, stand in good company here today. There's many in this room who have seen, tasted your goodness. We watched you go through what you went through, Lord, and we believe in our hearts because you granted us faith. And so as much as we're moved, Lord, at the physical suffering, Lord, far greater are we moved of the, the veil that's torn, the finished work, our confidence to enter the veil because of Christ. We thank you today. And we want to physically do something, Lord, that reminds us to remember you. And so now we're going to come to the table, Lord, because we don't want this to be another sermon. We don't want our minds to drift away today. We want to remember, because remembrance leads to worship. And so, Lord, now press that upon us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.